There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster, and a writer, and I'm your chief investigator of images. So this week, it's a live one. It is coming to you from the rock and roll stage of Latitude Festival. Now, we weren't rock and rolling, but we were rocking some ideas. I was there on the speakeasy tent with my wonderful dear friend, Professor Alice Roberts, And we wanted to do um, a live discussion about the relationship between art and science. Alice turns her hand to art herself, and she's got a real strong interest in how the humanities intersect with STEM subjects. And likewise, I'm an art historian, but I'm interdisciplinary, and I've always been fascinated, particularly by biology. So we have a lot in common and we had a lot we wanted to discuss. We've selected um, some great images that illustrate the juxtaposition between the sciences and the humanities most effectively. And it's good fun. It's two people who love what they do enjoying a chat about art. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. Dr. Yanina Ramirez here. I'll do my regular intro to Art Detective, which is I'm an Oxford art historian, a writer and a broadcaster, but I'm your chief investigator of images. And I have recently been sent a sheriff's badge that says precisely that, chief investigator of images. So I'm wearing that in honour of my role. I would like to introduce you to my dear friend, guest, Professor Alice Roberts, who is Professor of the Public Understanding of Science. No. No. She's not. <laughs> Tell me. No, because uh, that would be pus. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, gosh. I knew uh, I'd get your incredibly long title wrong. What is your incredibly long title? Well, the thing is, if I had, if I had been made Professor of Public Engagement in Science... 10 years ago, it would have been public understanding of science because we had this kind of one-way idea of the flow of information. But now it's much more kind of about sharing the love and, and actually a dialogue. Um, so we talk about engagement. Oh, that's than, nice. But not, I'm not getting married with science. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you'd say you're Professor of Public Engagement in Science at the yeah. University of Birmingham. And um, Alice has been on my podcast before. The art detective uh, is 
It's a lovely idea. It was, it was brought up, up originally because the art history A-level was under threat. They were going to get rid of it. And I wanted to do something to keep enthusiasm up for the discipline that I love so much. The study of art alongside history. It's a magical discipline. Uh, and it's unlocking the past through visual culture. It's very exciting. So um, every week on the podcast, we look at one image. But today, for you, we will be looking not at one, but at a number of images that show the relationship between science and art. And I asked Alice to come up with some images, and I came up with some, and we came up with exactly the same images, didn't we, pretty much? Yeah, pretty much, apart from one that I want to talk to you about. I'm really interested in your ideas on it. I know, she's teased me with yeah. it. I'm not allowed to know what it is yet, so that's the last one, I think. But, um, but just to set the scene... Both of us like skulls. <laughs> this is us both with skulls, different types of skulls. But um, both of the work that we do, you do archaeology work as well, don't you? And what yeah, so my, my kind of narrow specialism um, is as a human bone specialist and particularly um, looking for pathology in, in ancient human remains. Uh, so I kind of I've studied anatomy very generally. I was a medic originally. Um, but then the bones side of things always fascinated me, so that's what I ended up doing my PhD on. And, the, and skulls are just wonderful because they're so complex. They're such a complex bit of the skeleton. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're fantastic. That's a chimpanzee skull. Yeah. And it's, um, it's so different from a human skull. Um, and yet this is our closest living relative. And, uh, and there are lots of clues within the skull there about how our lineages diverged off from each other over time. And what are you holding, Nina? I am holding a horrendous skull. Um, that skull is the skull of the gentleman who was the Chancellor of England during the Peasants' Revolt. And um, he... It was under the reign of Richard II and the peasants... The peasants, the peasants. Just people, really, rather than peasants. But uh, there was an uprising against the king and against the court, and they ran into the Tower of London, grabbed the Chancellor, and cut his head off, and they put his head on Tower Bridge. And it was hot, it was July when this happened. So it, it was very, very hot, and his skin has actually mummified. Uh, it's, it's, a ta- it's, it's a very strange skull. That is a skull with a nose. It is a skull with a nose, and you can see the soft palate inside, you can see the brain tissue, it's very grim. But I, it's now in a box in a church, in Dorset, I think it is, and I was invited to go and to this church, and I didn't know what I was seeing. And uh, they said, "We're not. We're going to film your response. So we want to see what you think when you see when when we show you the thing. You don't know what it is." And I went into this room. They opened. Oh, they opened this little box up on the side of the wall, and inside was his head. And, and they said, "You can hold it if you like." And I was thinking, "Oh, thanks so much. I will. I'll hold it." And then I held it and did the, all the bits of interviews, all the rest of it. And as I was leaving, the vicar of the church said, you're one of only three people who've touched that skull. And I thought, am I going to die now? <laughs> is, this like, is this the curse of Tutankhamun? Am I, am I going to get some deadly disease? But anyway, these two slides are not art, but they are illustrations of our fascination with skulls. And that brings us on to our first artwork, which is a drawing by Leonardo da Vinci. Off a so these drawings are utterly amazing um, and there was a fantastic exhibition a couple of years ago now in the Queen's Gallery uh, of Leon, which is where uh, where these uh, notebooks are held and they're, they're, they're his own personal sketches so, so they're not made for anybody other than him um, and the amazing thing about these uh, sketches is that they 
they didn't kind of get out into uh, the public or they, were, they weren't seen by the public um, until centuries later. Uh, so they remained in private hands, in private ownership. And they're just astonishing. I mean, the attention to detail is absolutely wonderful. So he's really kind of captured uh, details of anatomy that were certainly not being written about at the time. So he's, he's identified things which I think at that point in time had no name mm. um, because the, the sort of the, the standard anatomy in the textbooks just hadn't caught up with where he was with his own observations. And I think he was doing it to, um, to help his art. So he was making these sketches so that he understood the human body better. Um, and, but he's also actually interested in anatomy itself. And I think that comes through from looking at a, a picture like this, is that obviously he's, he's never going to be painting the inside of somebody's skull but he's rather interested in it. And, uh, and you can see how complex the skull is when you get on the inside there. So this is a section through the skull. So you can see he's done a, uh, there's a section down through the skull, so that's a sagittal section, and then a coronal section coming in horizontally pretty much as well. Um, and then meeting in the middle, so you can see all of those structures. And you can see um, a bit in the middle, it's kind of difficult because you can't really point to it, but there's a bit in the middle where um, there are sort of two prongs pointing backwards. And that's just where the pituitary gland sits. It's called the cella turcica, which means the Turkish saddle. Oh, wow. Because it's got these little prongs at the front and the back. And then just in front of that, you can see the optic nerves going through yes. the optic canals. And they're going to be going into the back of the orbit, where the, uh, obviously where the globe sits, where the eye sits. But there's so much detail there. Um, and also the blood vessels on the side of the skull. That's mm. astonishing. Mm. So he's, when you open a skull up, I mean, what's interesting is that this skull was obviously slightly fleshed. So it's a little bit like your chancellor's head. Yeah. Um, so you can see some of the vessels and some of the nerves that are actually passing through those foramina, those holes in the skull. Um, and on the side of the skull, you can see these blood vessels ascending on the side of the skull. So they're coming up through a, um, a little hole at the base of the skull and then on the inner surface of the skull, rising up. And they're supplying the bone of the skull, but also supplying the meninges as well. So that's actually the middle meningeal artery. And this is a real design flaw in the skull because uh, the, d the middle meningeal artery, you can see where it is, it kind of rises up on the inside of your head about here. And actually this area here on your skull, you've got four bones coming together. Um, you've got the sphenoid bone, the frontal bone, uh, the parietal bone and the temporal bone all coming together on the side of your skull just there. And the skull is really thin at that point. Mm. Um, so it's not a, where you can see through the section there and you've got um, probably half a centimetre worth of skull on the top here. It's much, much thinner than that at this point. So you've got this terrible design flaw on the skull where there's this actually quite vulnerable artery mm. running up along the inside of the skull just where it's very fragile, actually. So if you, get, if you get hit on the side of the head here, that can end up being very serious and you can end up with an intracranial bleed. Um, and it, you know, it can be fatal. So we, we're kind of seeing all that anatomy, all that detail. I mean, it's just astonishing. These were uh, late. He was he was he was operating over the over the turn of the century. Wasn't That's he? right. Late 15th, yeah. 30, so his 16th. sketches date from sort of 1490s through to sort of 1510, We've got some of his later ones that we're going to look at as well. And I mean, we all know Leonardo da Vinci seems to be this renaissance man this man who does it all um and i think that really is the case when you look at these sketches because it's this it's this idea that he needs to understand the world and art is his way of, of relating to it and expressing it but actually we now would say this is art this is science yeah and never yeah. the twain shall meet but in this one person and in his, his whole collection of works, you see how that is a relatively pointless distinction because science depends 
on visual material. It depends on records. It depends on looking, understanding. And art depends a lot of the time on understanding human figures, the workings of the body and the workings of the emotions and the mind and all the things that go together. But what I'm intrigued about with this, Alice, is is he... Do you think then he is conducting these sorts of dissections himself? Is he taking skulls apart? What's he doing? I think he probably was. I mean, he doesn't tell us. That's the that's the. And he wasn't really allowed thing. to, really. No. <laughs> that's the other thing. I mean, he's obviously obtaining um, uh, cadavers, and we presume that they must have been um, the bodies of uh, presumably cr- criminals that have been hanged. Mm. Um, but it certainly looks as though he probably is doing. He is interacting with them directly, and and I think in terms of the. He doesn't tell us that he's doing the dissection himself, but the way he's drawing it and trying to understand it, I can't imagine him not uh, interacting directly with that material and kind of poking things around and saying, mm. well, you know, where does that go? Mm. Um, but I, I think it's lovely. I mean, I, I'm an anatomist and this is, you know, how I... I learnt my anatomy by drawing it. I yeah. kind of internalised it through that process. Of Alice is a great it. artist, actually. You, you you paint and draw very well, sir. And I think it's interesting again that you're sciencey, but you've always drawn, haven't you? Yeah, and I, I don't like this separation between the arts and sciences. And I think that it's it's there in our education system, and it's and it particularly in Britain, actually. If you look at the education system across the rest of Europe, it's it's quite different, and uh, we don't, it's not as polarised. So I think the the narrowness of our A level system. Um, whereas if you compare that with a baccalaureate system where you're studying a lot more subjects through to 18 um, and I think we I think we kind of impose this terrible choice on our children of, of, of either either saying yes I'm a scientist or yes I'm an artist whereas couldn't you be a bit of both for a bit longer mm. I remember the crisis that rang out through my school when I said I was going to do English history and biology no but you can't put biology with humanities subjects yes I can but it is it's a, it's a it's unbelievable that we box our children up so early into thinking of things as as single disciplines um, and I think that someone like Leonardo he would never have thought of these things as being distinct from one another. But what he does do, which I think very few artists really do successfully, is that he seems to go beyond just wanting to understand the body in order to depict it and draw it. Because you could say, you know, Michelangelo, when he creates David, when he does these beautiful figures, these lovely muscular formations, he's doing that from having looked at lots and lots of bodies very, very closely. Leonardo wants to get inside. He wants to look at the absolute minute workings. And this sits alongside the sorts of inventions that he's interested in. Um, a lot of the, the 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 idea of technology, he wants to understand the workings of cogs and wheels and machines, and he wants to understand the workings of, of the body. So you're, what you're saying here then is he's showing something that very few people knew or cared or wrote about at this stage. Yeah, right? I mean, you know, so I've, I've identified the artery on the side of the skull, the middle meningeal artery, but it wouldn't have had a name at that point. Yeah. So he's he's drawing detail that was... As yet unnamed. unnamed. He's he's mapping an unknown an unknown continent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that makes him quite unique, doesn't it? And I mean I've got another one of his skulls. He does quite a few skull drawings, doesn't he? Yeah, so this is wonderful. So this is a kind of um on obviously on, on one side you can see the skull complete, and then on the other side, um this is a um a section, um again it, well, this is a coronal section coming down. So you can see inside the maxilla, and you can see that the um the maxilla which is lies under your cheek is completely hollow. And that, that kind of hollow cavity just underneath the eye is the maxillary sinus. So it's huge. You know, when you think about your sinuses around your, around your nose, they're actually really big spaces. Yeah. The, the maxillary um, airspace is, is, is huge. So the, the, the maxilla itself is a, is a completely hollow bone. 
it's, I think it's fascinating because <clears throat> you know, one of the things that's so amazing about Leonardo's paintings is that he can bring such expression into the faces of the people that he's painting and drawing. And, and that is, again, it's coming almost from the inside out. He's trying to understand why our cheeks do what they do, why when you smile, certain things move in the way that they do. And he does lots and lots of expression studies as well, which are fascinating. Yeah, yeah. But I think that this is... And even the teeth, the idea that he's showing the different sizes of teeth um, to get that accurate, to get it absolutely tiny and correct. It's just wonderful. I mean, you, looking at the mandible where you've got the section through the jaw at the bottom there, um, you, you can oh, even yeah. see the texture of the bone. Bone marrow, yes. See, it's giving that impression of that kind of spongy bone down there. That's it's incredible. so beautiful. I mean, it, it does make me wonder how many people he's cutting open. <laughs> I mean, this does worry yeah, me yeah, slightly. Yeah, I think it's a lot. Because, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the sketches fill up, his, fill up his notebooks. And uh, what I was amazed about when I first saw those notebooks is how small they were. Because mm. these, these drawings are, um, you know, they're so detailed. And he's drawing um, with, with pen and ink. And the notebooks are... Yeah, Tiny. So I think I had a re- I had a book of reproductions of them at home, which is kind of a coffee table mm. book. Well, and even there, like you're going, well, they're pretty detailed. And then when you actually see them in the flesh and you see how small they are, mm. um, they yeah, they're really tiny. And I, and I think it's 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 the level of detail is is so impressive. And if we look at this one, these are two oh, these different. Gorgeous, I mean, yeah. these are absolutely sublime. And you're right, the notebooks are tiny, and um, and I, I think it's always important with scale. We always lose touch of the scale of our artworks nowadays because we might not go to see them in the flesh. These are, in fact, incredibly difficult to get your hands on and see in the flesh. Um, but but when something is a tiny diagram and it gets blown up on a big screen like it is here, we lose a sense of the artistry. Mm. The artistry of this is miniaturism. It's it's he's so so detailed. So what have we got here? Because I love these. these yeah, are. they're lovely, aren't they? So uh, a study of the skeleton on the left there, and it's just, it is just absolutely perfect. I mean, he's looking really carefully. He's recording it. Um, and, you know, I can use these today to teach my students. Could they're, you? They're actually yeah. accurate. Then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scient- they're, they're completely scientifically observed. accurate. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so he's, he's just observing and, uh, and recording exactly what he's seeing. Um, and uh, this one on the right is quite interesting. So this is muscles and tendons. Um, and I don't know whether that cadaver looks like it's dried out a bit because there's the, the stringiness of the... Has it been the, dug up? <laughs> a bit odd, isn't it? It's been hanging around for a while, I think. Yeah. Because the, the stringiness of the, of the pectoralis muscle, the, the chest muscle that goes up to the arm, um, is a little bit peculiar. That one where the, where the cadaver's lifting his arm and you've got these kind of strings of, uh, of muscles. So I don't know whether it looks like it's dried out a little bit. Oh, dear, again, is that what would happen if you... It, so after... It all after gets a bit death, it goes stringy. stringy, yeah. And and obviously he's, you know, he oh. would have been cutting up bodies that, that weren't preserved. So most of the dissection that we carry out now in anatomy teaching and in medical schools, the bodies will be the bodies will be preserved in formalin. Um, so they last for ages. I mean, when I was teaching at Bristol, we had some particularly nice prosections that people had prepared that had they, you know, really good dissections that showed things perfectly. Um, and they had dates on, so we kind of knew when that when that body had arrived in the department. And some of them were twenty years old. Oh wow! Um, and they were fine. They were just sitting there, pickled in their in their buckets. Um, but he would have been. World, I know, very strange. <laughs> but he would have been dissecting a um, a fresh body. And I, I, I've recently dissected a fresh body. I and mean, we do do some fresh dissections because it is different. The the texture of the uh, of the tissue is is completely different. So surgeons, um, when they're 
learning anatomy or you know when they're refining their knowledge of anatomy or practicing operations prefer to operate and prefer to dissect um, on fresh um, specimens, unfixed specimens. But the one I, the one I did recently was quite interesting because it was a chimpanzee. Oh, I um, remember you telling me you were yeah, going to dissect. Yeah, so I dissected a chimpanzee with my PhD student back in May. And that was Wasn't there something wrong with the chimpanzee? You were warned it had some sort of infection or yeah, something. Yeah, it was... <laughs> <laughs> I think I was with you when you had that call. <laughs> so it was just totally freaked me out because I'm a medic originally. And, um, and basically, uh, we were told that we had to be dissecting in full, full um, protective gear, um, including um, uh, masks and, and uh, an advisor, um, and, and triple gloving, because this chimpanzee had had Yersinia, um, which is a genus of bacterial infection. And um, I'd, you know, I, I, I do... Uh, work with primates and I do you know I'm interested in primate anatomy but my background is as a medical doctor as a human doctor and so my my knowledge about Yersinia um, didn't really extend to uh, infections in in primates and other primates and and basically um, some of you may have heard of Yersinia and you if you've heard of Yersinia you've probably heard of Yersinia pestis which is the plague. Literally, the plague. So then I have this kind of Michael Crichton-esque hmm. scenario playing out in my head where I go, oh my God, this could be the start of, you know, um, the, the plague being unleashed on humanity. Professor Alice Roberts <laughs> passed over the chimpanzee <laughs> and the plague was unleashed. Anyway, it wasn't your It wasn't the plague no, and she did no, do it and no, it was it, fine. It was I did fine. say to you, I would not be doing that dissection tomorrow, Alice. I yeah. think you should not do it. No, it was but fine. But you did go and do it. Yeah, we did. It was all um, proper, proper health and safety and it was absolutely <laughs> fine. But it was, it was absolutely fascinating because if you look at that guy with his arm up in the air and you can see kind of muscles there, so you can see deltoid coming over the shoulder um, and then you all know where biceps is on the front of your arm there. And Even I know that, that really one. beautifully. <laughs> then you've got triceps on the back. And I'm dissecting this chimpanzee and I kind of, you know, I've studied, I've studied the anatomy of primates from books. It was the first time I'd ever dissected a chimp. I've dissected a macaque before, which was interesting, but it's the first time I dissected a chimp. It was a female chimpanzee um, who was in her 40s when she died of natural causes. And, um, not the black death. Not the black death, no. Um, and and uh, so female chimpanzees are actually quite a similar size to us. Uh, male chimps are a little bit bigger, but her arms are a similar size to mine. And it was quite weird dissecting something that was another species, but was so similar. Gosh. You know, deltoid was there, um, biceps was there. And not only that, all the nerves supplying those muscles were also exactly the same as they, wow. they are in humans. And you, and you very powerfully get that impression of um, species being variations on a theme. Mm. And, and I'm fascinated by this, because you know, that is the evidence for evolution. Mm. We don't need the fossils. We've got all of it. If you look at comparative anatomy, you suddenly see that there are these relationships between animals that seem quite different on the surface. When you go in underneath, you see these relationships laid bare and those, those similarities are meaningful. The similarities speak of common ancestry. Mm. You know, the reason that the chimp anatomy is so similar to human anatomy mm. is that you and I had uh, ancestors in common with chimpanzees going back seven million years ago. Yeah. So if we were able to trace our family trees back that far, what we would find is not only has everybody's family tree coalesced, but actually the family trees of our of us and chimpanzees have coalesced, and there's a there's a common, common ancestor. Origin. And I think I think this is the the thing that fascinates me about Leonardo is because this is the world of science. Uh, having done my biology A level very proudly, um, I. I was very much aware that doctors and medics and scientists and people in laboratories 
cut open bodies and look at bone structures and make arguments about what bits they're identifying different parts of the body. Not artists. Artists don't do that. Artists are creative folk making things out of paint and being all airy-fairy. And that is absolutely not the case in this man. In this man, Leonardo, we have, I think, someone who in our day and age would have been more of a scientist. Um, he, he was so fascinated that the art was almost a secondary. It was almost an extension of this fascination coming out through beautiful paint, beautiful drawing. Um, and, you know, when we look at how fascinated he is... Now, this is quite interesting because this is where the two come together, isn't it? There is a degree of artistic licence going on in this one, Absolutely. Isn't there? Right. Yeah, this is weird. Um, so... This, um, I think he's probably done some sketching in the dissection room, mm. uh, but then he's, he's kind of going off on a bit of a flight of imagination as well. So you can see in the pelvic area that he's trying to show female anatomy, but it's very odd looking. I mean, it looks like something out of Geiger. You know, it's a bit <laughs> alien-esque, isn't it? It's very, very strange. I can kind of identify things, but mm. um, I, think the, I think the thing which looks like a, um, a globe so the ball-shaped thing is, is the uterus. Oh, really? Um, and below it is the vagina coming down. But those kind of, the, the weird kind of horns sticking off the uterus are, are odd. I think the one, I think the, the lower one of those horns, it, there's sort of a branch on each side, isn't there? I think mm. the lower one, maybe the round ligament of the uterus that he's picked up and he's, and he's sort of showing that there. I don't know what the, I don't know what the top one is. I, I don't, is I it a fallopian see. tube? I suppose it might be, but it's not, you know, where's it going? The fallopian tube doesn't go right up to, you know, it's heading up towards the rib cage almost. It's very, very odd. So he's, he's I think he's trying to understand things, but then also he's kind of sketching things in, in quite a kind of freestyle here. So, so do you think he actually hasn't dissected a female, this area of the female? And I that think he's, he's seen something. He's, I think he's seen something. So I think he's, I think he's observed something, um, but then he's kind of filling in the gaps. So, right. there's, so it's not direct observation and recording, as some of the other works most definitely are. This is kind of him having, having probably observed a bit and then trying to just represent it much more diagrammatically, I suppose. That's what, that's what it is, but it's wrong. But, but this, I mean, this is what interests me, because this is not the age of public dissections. This is not the age where people could actually go in and watch. So... I'm, I am just intrigued to know where all of this is going on and how it's going on. They were, they were starting to do some public dissections, and we'll, we'll come to that. Yeah. We'll come to that later. But I mean, you're right. I mean, a lot of this was carried out behind closed doors, and there were some anatomists that were starting to do things, do things in public. Um, it's in, what's interesting about the Renaissance and anatomy is that anatomy kind of went um, underground and was, and was kind of untouched as a science almost um, from. Uh, I don't know, prob probably from you know the time of Aristotle. So going back to the the third, fourth century BC, we know that we know that people were doing dissections then. Um, and then by the time you get Galen, who's a very famous anatomist, who is a who is a Roman, um, in operating in the first century AD, he's not doing human dissection. It's taboo mm. at that point to do human dissection. So he dissects dogs and pigs and and apes. And, and, and kind of extrapolates to human anatomy from that and, and does get some things wrong. And it's not until the Middle Ages that we start getting dissection happening again. Um, and even actually when it starts happening, it's interesting because uh, Galen is like the Bible of anatomy and the anatomists are, are very worried about contesting anything in Galen, mm. despite the fact that Galen actually didn't do any human dissection. So um, there are all these anatomists who say, well, the word of Galen must be true. If the body is different from Galen, the body is wrong. 
Wow. Um, it's really weird. <laughs> the yeah. body is the and there, the there was all this discussion about whether human anatomy had changed since Galen's time. So actually, he was right, um, but it's changed since then. And then it took some really quite um, uh, powerful characters to be able to say, no, there are some cases in which Galen was clearly wrong. Um, you know, what's wrong? You know, there's nothing wrong with saying that. Um, but he'd, he'd become this almost godlike character that you couldn't dare criticize. Wow. And I, I think there is, I mean, there's the whole sort of religious implications of this that we have within the, the, the majority of the medieval period, which is the idea that you do not meddle with the body after death. It's, it's a sin, you shouldn't do it. And, and there is a real sort of just, just a closing down of, of, of study in that area. And, and I think there's still an interest in it and within monastic environments, people are still conducting their own investigations and going back to older texts. But there is a definite rise. I know it got me as well. There's a really nasty, <laughs> bitey fly that's trying to get us both. <laughs> it's all right, it's behind you. Um, but yeah, so we, but, that, but then we get to the Renaissance, we get to this period in the 16th century where um, th there is a rise of interest in it and different people are making different types of versions of the um, anatomical drawings, aren't they? So yeah, Leonardo yeah. carries on doing what he's doing and we should show you some of these because these are, these are personal oh, favourites, aren't amazing. they? Yeah. yeah. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So this is beautiful, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's gorgeous. Um, and I think he, uh, and again, I think he probably has seen something, but he's, he, there is a bit of a flight of fancy thing going on here. So this is, it, it, it's, um, it's interesting when you think about what he's seen, isn't it? Because he's, he's presumably seen a woman who's died in childbirth, or not even in childbirth, but a pregnant woman who's died. And he's at really yeah, an advanced stage, because yeah, this, is, this yeah. is an advanced pregnancy, isn't it? So there was a, they're huge. There was a, um, there was a, it's interesting when you go back to the slightly kind of earlier medieval um, texts and you, and you see images of babies in the, in the womb mm. and you normally have a little baby just kind of standing up in the yes. womb and they clearly didn't really know how the baby was kind of, fit, how, how it fitted inside. Um, but Leonardo does. So I, uh, I think he's, I think he has seen, Do you very think? sadly, yeah, I think he probably has. 
um, seen a you know a, a woman who's died in pregnancy, and this is a this is a fetus almost at term. Mm. Um, but the uterus itself is very odd, actually, um, and the, he doesn't. I think he's done some dissections of animals because the placenta that he's shown, can you see that? Can you see in, within the uterus, within the wall of the uterus, right at the top there, there's a kind of zigzaggy yes, pattern. Yeah. Um, and, and this is a, a, a type of placenta that isn't actually human. Um, so it's a, it's a type, of, um, type of placenta that we see in other animals. So I think he's done other animal dissections and has just thought, oh, well, that's, that style of placenta is there in humans as well, so we'll represent it there. It's really We don't, we don't have placentas like that. No, yeah. no, so that's inaccurate as well. So that's a bit of, uh, he's being creative. He's taking yeah. inspiration from other things he's seen, mm. putting it together. And I mean, just just as an image, this is beautiful. I think yeah. it's touching. I think it's, it's so beautifully executed. He does these studies as well. Which are just sublime. So I think he has. I mean, they look they look like they're observed, don't they, Nina? Yes, I think yeah. they do. And and again, that 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 feels quite tragic that yeah, that must have been does. done this from a, observing you know, a, dead a dead fetus. fetus yeah. Um, but having looked at uh, the way that he's dealing with uh, with those sorts of dissections, you also wanted to talk very quickly about what he discovers about the heart because yeah. he really this is where he actually makes scientific breakthroughs like hundreds of years before he does but but then but they don't get out there yeah. i mean that's the interesting you know the interesting thing about these notebooks as i said is that they're they're not published they're not published until centuries later mm. so they remain in private hands um and yet you know this was a time when we it was not understood how the heart worked so that you know we're, we're pre-harvey in the circulation of the blood and yet Leonardo is, is showing things here, like the, um, the beautiful cusps of the valve there, of the, uh, of the aortic valve. Mm. And, um, you know, people had, not, people had not written about this at this point in time. And the coronary arteries, the detail of the branching of the coronary arteries. So it's, you know, it's kind of, um, it's kind of frustrating that it didn't get out there. Mm. But, you know, this incredible, these incredible insights in anatomy uh, remained in those, in those notebooks until they were published. Because it was a couple of hundred years later. Was it how many hundred I years later? I think it was 18th century. 18th century, yeah. yeah. So a good few hundred years later. And I think I'm right in saying that isn't, isn't he the first to depict the, the valve, um, yeah. the way that... It, the, is it the aortic valve that yeah, he's the first to... Yeah, the, and he works out this, this sequence. Because the other thing is he wouldn't have seen this heart beating... And yet he visualizes the flow of blood. So he does a lot of drawings of water flow mm. and the way that water moves and the way that if you put um, an obstruction in the flow of water, how, the move, how it moves around it to get a sense of, of you know, the, 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 that movement of liquid. And I think that that's what he then applies to understand the flow of blood, that if this valve goes open... Um, it has to be because the blood is pushing through it yeah, and yeah. then it closes up afterwards. But that, again, is, is a hun hundreds of years before anyone else yeah, writing amazing. or thinking about it's that. It's amazing. Yeah. We've got some images of, um, of other anatomy yes. books at the time, haven't we? Yes. So you wanted to illustrate the point that he was streets ahead of everybody else at the time. So this is, this is what the textbooks at the time looked like great isn't it um, <laughs> kind of accurate. it's kind of a bit of illuminated manuscript about them yep. um there's a it's really interesting isn't it looking at that figure because um this is the introduction of the um 
the animated cadaver in anatomy textbooks and anatomy atlases. So rather than looking at a, a, a dissected body um, as, you know, Leonardo is kind of letting us into the dissection room, isn't he? Yeah. We're not let into the dissection room here. We're showing a kind of reanimated corpse. It's a bit weird. Um, <laughs> and the, the outdoor setting as And the well. outdoor setting, yeah, so exactly. So um, striding around in a, in, a, in a nice little kind of rural setting. Yeah. And, um, and the anatomy is just rubbish. I mean, this is just, you know, it's a kind of impression of anatomy, but you're not going to learn anything by looking at that, that picture. And this is supposed to actually be a study of anatomy. This oh, this is the title that yeah, this yeah, is yeah. And about the, anatomy. And the text is the text is you know full on. It's it's a it's um, uh, Berengario's commentary on on Mondino. And actually, Mondino was a uh, was a professor of anatomy at Bologna. Um, who was a predecessor of Berengario's. So he's, he's, he's uh, basically publicising the work of his predecessor, but also um, uh, commissioning these illustrations. But the illustrations are just for fun. I mean, they really are. They're not, they're not, um, they're not delivering any scientific information at all. They're just, they're just pretty. And it's balmy that, you know, actually earlier than this, 10, 15, 20 years earlier, Leonardo is creating things that would actually be useful in a book of anatomy. Yeah. And yet oh. they're not appearing in this sort of a setting. And they are quite, <laughs> quite uh, basic, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> and this one's, I love this one. It's got like an Apollo, like sunburst behind it. Um, and again, the anatomy is just so weird. I, I love mean, the genitals. I mean, surely maybe. that could have been done slightly <laughs> better. And maybe but, we're seeing rectus abdominis, but rectus abdominis doesn't stretch all the way up as far as it's it being shown there. So again, it's just this kind of very weird, um, uh, lackadaisical approach to um, anatomy. Um, and it's totally, they're totally hamstrung by um, the kind of, the artists going off on one and just doing their own thing, <laughs> the kind of period style. Um, yeah. And also, actually, it's a woodcut. Exactly, it's so a woodcut, it's kind of yeah. like, You know, you can't get the fine lines that, that Leonardo was getting with his pen and ink. Yes, so that's, again, one of the problems, I think, with these early printed illustrations is that you can't get the, quite the same level of detail, although you do you, you do with people like Jura, you know, really good printmakers. Yeah. Um, but this is clearly not. This is very, very basic. And then things change, don't they? So this was, I mean, yeah, this, this was the time when actually something, something rather wonderful happened, which was that um, you, you got the attention to detail coming through in the, in the illustrations. Um, so this is Vesalius, and Vesalius was um, uh, a fantastic anatomist, uh, and he did public dissections. Mm. So he was a bit of a showman. Um, and he made this book with Stefan van Kalkar was his illustrator, and Stefan van Kalkar was an amazing artist, so um, they really did capture together the the structure of the human body and and I would have uh, you know it 's really interesting there must have been a, there must have been a um, a, an interesting uh, working relationship between those two men mm. because I think that Vesalius is He's doing the dissections, and yeah. then he's uh, he's maybe sketching. I don't know. So, like, what? How, how did this? How did these images arise? Is is uh, Van Kalkar coming into the dissection room, and and uh, Vesalius taking him through what's needed in, in each of the pictures, or is Vesalius doing sketches that, that Van Kalkar's working up? We don't know. Well, this is a fascinating example of the relationship between artist and patron, isn't it? Mm. That. Um, the artist is the creator and has all these amazing ingenious ideas. Actually, in this case, I'm sure that there is. That it has to be entirely collaborative. It yeah. has to be. Yeah. No, that's not correct. It's almost. You can almost feel Vesalius over the shoulder, can't you? Sort of guiding. Yeah. Guiding. Yeah. Guiding the images, but and they are beautiful. The, and then of course, the sad thing about it is that is that the the book is known as Vesalius's book. You know, it's his name yeah. on it. Um, Van Kalkar is mentioned, but but very often when people talk about Vesalius's book, they never. 
mention Van Kalkar, and I, I always make sure I do because it, he made the images. Yeah. And it's a collaborative work. So it's really Vesalius and Van Kalkar together. And what I love about these is, <laughs> is the idea that, yeah, you know, I've been asked to come and draw some bodies and some boats, but I'm just going to stick a little bit of architecture and landscape in the background. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. kind of fancy doing some Roman ruins. <laughs> Well, it kind of follows on, it's the same archetype, isn't it, that we saw in Berengario. So once again, this animated cadaver. And that's interesting. I don't know whether, there might be some kind of moral dimension. I think it's the moral well. dimension, yeah. yes, that this is not a dead person, that they're still, yeah. in, they still have their soul. And it's an exploration of the body and the soul in, as much as yeah. anything else, yeah. So, and there are some, um, there's, there's one by Valverde, actually, which is very interesting, which is um, a, a kind of a man standing there with all his muscles on show, and he's holding a knife in one hand and his flayed skin in the other hand. Yes. And well, let's got, look at... So it's almost like, it's almost like these, these people who are criminals, you know, these are hanged criminals who are being dissected. It's almost like they've achieved salvation by letting themselves be dissected. They've, they've achieved some kind of um, uh, forgiveness by, by being dissected. They're, they're giving back to humanity and they've been forgiven post-mortem, unfortunately. Mm. Um, and, with that, and with that Valverde one, it's almost like he's gone as far as to skin himself. Yes. to achieve salvation, which is, which is peculiar. Yeah. So I do think there are these kind of moral themes. But I think there's something about public engagement as well. I think that they're probably thinking, well, if we draw what's in the dissection room, it's a bit gory <laughs> and we might lose people. And actually, Vesalius was interested in sharing anatomy to a wider audience and not just, the, not just doctors, but, um, but people more generally who thought would be interested in the workings of the human body. Um, so I think that kind of you know, slightly weird. I mean, it is weird, isn't it? This animated cadaver thing. Mm. Um, it's, it, it takes it away from being real. It takes it away from being a real dead body in the dissection room. Absolutely. And the poses, they're in heroic poses. They're contraposto. They're looking up. They've got this heroism about them, haven't they? Which, um, and they, are, they, are certain, they seem to be living, beating bodies again. Um, and I think it gets them around the, the very strange moral amb um, ambiguity that surrounded dissection. I think there was a lot of... of um, anxiety about fiddling with God's creation, fiddling with human bodies and pulling them apart. Well, it's, um, very, it's very pertinent that it, you know, it was only criminals, basically, exactly. being dissected. Normal people or non-criminal people were not being, you know, they would not have allowed their bodies to be dissected. These ones, I think, are amazing. So we're going deeper and deeper and deeper. More and more muscles are being stripped away. Um, and you can see that you know muscles are being detached at one end and are still attached at the elbow and the one on the left. On the right, I think this is really funny because we, we're kind of breaking the, um, that illusion of um, this animated cadaver that somehow is able to walk around on its own. Um, and yet in this one, it's like, you know, he's basically lost his muscles and his legs and he's kind of, he's falling down onto that little step. Um, it's it's rather like, tragic. Oh, no, I actually it? can't stand up anymore. Oh my I've goodness. I've lost all the muscles. He's got a hamstring just kind of hanging there at the back. Yeah. And so these are actually useful then to medics and scientists, these oh, diagrams. Yeah. And, 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 and highly accurate. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. You know, those, those are all muscles that I know and recognize. I can see erector spiny. I can see, the, um, I can, I can see the, the muscles between the ribs there. I can see, uh, I can see piriformis coming uh, from the sacrum and going off to the, the back of the femur. It's, yeah, they're all, they're all absolutely identifiable. I can see soleus muscle. Like, yeah. And, and I know it looks grotesque, the way that there are bits hanging down. I, that's a bit grim. But it, has he presumably left that in because it is appealing back and he's trying to show where points meet 
Is that the yeah, idea? I think so. I think it's a kind of um, it's almost like this kind of lift the flap um, books that you get. Um, and he's saying, he's saying, well, there, there you go. The flap has been lifted, but I'm going to leave the flap there just so you can see that the flap has been lifted. Excellent. They were looking at a deeper layer. It's very, very obvious they were looking at a deeper layer, mm. but still in a lovely rural landscape. Look, I mean, it's, <laughs> <laughs> apparently the hills around Padua. Yes, um, in the background there. Yeah, so he's, he's given it some some nice settings, and then this is this is where it really gets to sort of tragic end but again I think that there is something quite noble about this isn't there it's almost they're almost being shown as a memento mori yeah, aren't yeah. They? As, a, as a sign that you know remember your death look at that one on, on the left the way he's looking up yeah. almost um, crying out for salvation it's really interesting the posing in that one and it's quite early isn't it for that um, that kind of memento mori idea isn't it I mean that's kind of something that really gets going in the 17th century I think. oh it's yeah. right the way through the medieval period the cadaver tombs yeah, yeah. constantly yeah. got to remember you're going to die absolutely um, but, but again these would be practical useful things for, uh, for medics and, and people to use um, Oh, what, this one why this one? Yeah. You like this one, don't because, you? Yeah, because this is a memento mori, um, uh, very obviously, you know, it's this skeleton lo- considering this skull. Um, and so weirdly, you've got this already dead skeleton considering its own mortality. Um, and, and later on, you get fantastic kind of frontispieces to some of these anatomy books where you've got um, skeletons emerging from tombs holding hourglasses mm-hmm. just to make sure that, you know, it, you've got the message. You will <laughs> if die. If skeleton you wasn't more, enough, yeah. <laughs> here's a t- an hourglass. Um, and then you can see the inscription on this tomb that he's resting on. So um, I think it says, Vivitur ingenia, ingenio, caetera mortis erunt. Mm. So it means... Mm. Um, uh, everything is everything else is mortal. Genius lives on. Yeah. So again, a, a, a memento mori. <laughs> but I think there's a I think there's a kind of a second meaning to this. I think that Vesalius is saying to us, "I will die, but my genius G- will live on." Well, I think this is I think this is incredibly multi-layered. I think there's a, a deliberate irony in this as well because if you look, it's the skeleton is holding another skull is that right uh, which is also a sign of memento mori and and i think that this is trying to say that yes ideas and books and this book will go on after the the life of the person but even that even the brain the ideas may die too that there's a finite element to to genius as well i think it's absolutely incredible really powerful thought that isn't it that and this where does this come in the book is this the end plate or um no it's just within the the section on the skeleton interesting really yeah yeah because it would make a great end thought wouldn't it yeah <laughs> so i mean i think that i think these are these are art as much as they are useful anatomical drawings um you wanted to to just show where it goes to don't you bonkers uh it goes <laughs> So in the 18th century, um, we continue uh, with more and more sort of scientific approaches to, um, to showing the anatomy. And actually what we get is some really, the, the kind of, uh, I suppose, the, the forefront of anatomy moves from um, Italy to, um, to Holland and Belgium. And um, so there's been that kind of shift. But uh, also they start to actually draw um, anatomy as though it were still life. So we get a lot of, a lot of uh, illustrations which look as though you are in a dissection room often with a lot of extraneous material hanging around, which is not terribly useful to the anatomy. <laughs> but then the idea of anatomy as still life is taken to an absolute 
weird place. This is uh, very, very yeah. strange. Now, this is a drawing, but it's a drawing off something, isn't it? Yeah. That was actually, did it exist? This was an object yeah. that existed? He had a he had a kind of cabinet of curiosities, and he, he made these objects out of, um, as you can see, bits of dead tissue. And what we can see in this picture are little fetal skeletons and there's one mopping, well, they're both mopping their eyes, actually, with a bit of tissue. And actually, that tissue is a bit of membrane from inside the abdomen. Oh, come um, on. And the things which are sticking up like trees are actually dried bits of artery. <laughs> it's really foul. It's really just that bizarre. absolutely horrendous. horrible. There's and these are, fetal, so these are fetal skeletons. These yeah. are... Hmm. Oh my gosh! Okay, yeah. right. And so then, then this, this one's one that you really like, isn't it? Yeah. So it's a tiny little fetal skeleton, and it's it, oh. like yo-yos. It's got these. It's got two little embryos hanging oh, in his hands. Real embryos. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. This has been observed. This has been made as an object. So that skeleton has been assembled, and then it's been drawn. It's very macabre. That is. Yeah. That's pushing it to another level. Very bizarre. So we've gone from saying that we love skulls. Um, I'm now feeling that my stomach has turned. Yeah, no, it is it's, it's slightly sickening, isn't it? But I think it's interesting because actually what you then go on to get are the birth of collections. Um, cabinets of curiosities become museums. Museums become places of scholarship. And so these curiosities actually are setting in train something that leads to where we are now in terms of being able to understand and, and to collect and to make sense of. Mm. Um, but it, when you see them in isolation like that, that is just... Do they have I to think, be on strings? I That's think I know. I think Royce was doing something very odd. I think he's interested in the science and he's interested in the art as well, but there's just something really uncomfortable about this whole kind of trend, I think. Mm. But he was an exception. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, Thank we were going hopefully. to leave some time for questions and we've already done. We had another 25 slides to show you. <laughs> We were going to talk about childhood. We were going to do that somewhere else. Do you want to go to the one that you were going to surprise maybe me? Maybe Green Man. Maybe something. Yeah, pick it up afterwards <laughs> at the pub. Um, do you want to just go to this? Look, I'll show you all the lovely slides we brought along. We were going to talk about toys, about play. And then you had one object that you didn't tell me about. And I think we need, you need to ask me what so, you were going to ask me. So this is an Achillean hand deck. So this is um, uh, dates back to, they go back to about 1.8 million years ago. And up until that point, our ancestors were making fairly basic kind of cobble and flake tools. And then suddenly we get these things appearing and they tend to be this shape. They tend to be teardrop shaped and they, they range in size, actually. Some of them kind of fit in your hand. Some of them are huge. Some of them are about a foot long. Mm. But they all tend to have this shape and people are kind of constantly making this shape and they carry on making basically the same thing for about a million years. Mm. So it's interesting because it appears as a novelty and then any idea of innovation stops at that point and then they just carry on making the same thing again and again. But I just wonder, as, a, as an artist and an art historian, whether you would consider that to be art. Well, this is a question we have long debated, isn't it, about the point at which you can call something artistic creativity rather than simply doodles or scratches or, or, or just the byproduct of working something up. If it's, been, if it's useful, if it will improve life you might decorate it to make it look nice. Um, I think that it has, it's a, there's a real tendency to try and search for the artistic creativity of early people. And mm. you, yes, they've made these, these cuttings, they've made this shape, they've chosen to do it that way because they were trying to express something s spiritual, something symbolic. 
I think a lot of it is down to accident and a lot of it's down to repetition and a lot of it's down to usefulness. So presumably this did something, this had a use. It and did, so but it doesn't have to be that shape to have it a use. It doesn't have to no, be that shape, no. but it becomes traditional, I, I guess, that yeah. that's how it's always been done. This is how these things look. Um, so no, I think it, it raises really important questions about what art is and what art does that are always up for discussion um, but we only have five minutes left and we were going to take questions so sadly we'll have to continue this conversation yeah, but, but you haven't answered my question what well, is, like, is it art but is it art uh, no oh <laughs> oh from the point of view of an art historian i would say probably not no okay All no. Right, then. sorry alice but uh, but the the urge for creativity is nice that, they are, that yeah. they are creating and making and the idea of a shape in your head and the idea of a shape real. yeah I yeah. think there's something there's something there there's, there's something definitely there's an, an artistic urge yeah yeah which is very interesting but still quite basic yeah alright <laughs> Right, everybody, we would love to take some questions from you if you have any. Um, I believe there's a roving mic somewhere. I'm not sure. Oh, there it is. Ah, do please ask us. Here's a gentleman here who'd like to ask something. Thank you. Hello. Hello. I was just going to ask when art and anatomy split again. Because mm. my father told me when he was studying at Slade in the 40s, late 40s, that they still attended dissections and, mm. and that that was still going on then. And does it still happen now? Or I don't think many... Uh, I don't know of many training programmes for artists that still include visits to dissections. And you are right. I mean, it's... It's a relatively recent thing. I mean, there are still a lot of artists that will attend dissections and will find out about them. Or you know, go, it, is, it is a fundamental bedrock of, of, the, of creating paintings and artists and drawings. My father still has a skull in his studio. Yes. Yeah, I know. There's always the need to understand the body underneath. And I think that we're lucky because as, art, as, as anatomy moves on, there's more and more tools available across the centuries. So people don't necessarily have to go to a dissection. They can get a book of anatomy and work out um, from that or casts or you know, the different models that they can use. And all, our, all good art schools will have those sorts of, of um, anatomical tools within within them um but i think i think it's more an ideological split isn't it i think it's what alice was talking about earlier about the disciplines breaking away and a lot of artists not necessarily engaging with anatomy because they think it's science and i think that's in the in the minds of students and people learning about these things it's, it worries me now it worries me greatly at the moment um what would you say i think there's i I think there probably should be more of that because I think there's yeah. I think there's um, learning both ways um, and I think that um, you know it would be interesting to bring those different sets of students together as well and they could both learn from each other um, and it's it's very variable so um, my old prof of anatomy when I was at medical school in in Cardiff prof Moxham Bernie Moxham um, encouraged artists to come into the dissection room and he 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 was a very artistic guy he used to um, take us off on trips to Italy to go and talk about art and anatomy um, so he was he was heavily interested in that kind of artistic side as well um, and then and then when I was in Britain 
Bristol, um, I was I was approached by the Royal West of England Academy about coming in to to look at and, and draw dissections, um, and I thought that was fine. Um, you know, we obviously had to get information about the people that were coming into the dissection room and um, you know make sure they knew they weren't allowed to take anything home with them uh, and all of that sort of thing. Um, but then actually, um, my successor um, thought that was totally beyond the pale and was like, no, only only people who are signed up to biomedical degrees can come in and see this. And I thought that was a bit, yeah. I, I didn't know. I didn't know why. I didn't know. I didn't know why they wanted to ring fence it quite so securely. But you know, we're in a situation at the moment where um, many medical students don't see much anatomy. Mm. I think it's shocking, actually. Um, it's becoming more and more a sort of postgraduate thing. Mm. They learn from dolls and books. Mm. So they learn from these models, which mm -hmm. um, present a kind of, uh, uh, apart from anything else, present a kind of a single idealized view of the human body. Everybody's body is different. And you mm. get that profoundly uh, when you look at dissection. And there's anatomical variation in everybody. So everybody's a little bit different. Um, and you have different patterns of, of arteries and veins and all sorts of things. Um, and you get that by looking at the real thing. And also, I think you, you know, even our junior doctors, are doing uh, minor surgery and sticking the knife in mm. um, and I would prefer them to be doing that first on dead bodies and they do it on and I, and I think there's a kind of um, you know there's, there's oh we, we can do it all with computers now we can do it all with, with graphics and again you're just looking at an idealised version of the human body um, and, and you don't need to learn to cut up real flesh because you can just cut up a sponge and that's fine so there's all these kind of simulation courses where people are cutting up sponges but again that is not the same thing as cutting into a body mm. and there's something there's a whole kind of moral and ethical and, and kind of um, I don't know the, the philosophical dimension to it yeah. I remember Absolutely clearly, going into my dissection room, we did a lot of anatomy when I was at medical school. We did nine hours a week in the <laughs> dissection room. Um, that was kind of an old-fashioned course back in back in the early 90s, and nobody does that much now. Mm. Um, but I remember ever so clearly, first day at medical school, getting my kit, buying my kit, and going in with um, six uh, six other students, five other students, so six of us around one body. Um, we all became firm friends, obviously. It's nothing like cutting <laughs> up a body together. To, it's, Bring it's you together. Yeah. <laughs> um, but standing there with a the scalpel and going, oh my God, I've got to cut into this body. And it's such a taboo. It's such a taboo to take a knife and cut into a body, even if it's dead. Mm. And you've got to overcome that. Mm. So there's a real kind of philosophical thing, which I think is important too. Um, and I think that's and there's something about mortality and respect for the body and all of that sort of thing, which are, it, it, it's these kind of, they, those things we don't really, um, I, don't, I don't think they get thought about when you're thinking about the content of courses, how, how important it is to go through those processes and how important it is as an 18-year-old you know, entering medical school to start thinking about death and mortality, that's what you're going to be dealing with. And that is Doctor. something that art, art can help with as well, I think. Yeah. We are completely yeah. out of time. I'm getting waves and oh. one-minute warnings and all sorts of things going Bart, on in the Bart, wings. We're going to book sign. So we're going to book come sign. And to us when we're signing books and maybe buy a book as well. That'd be lovely. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening to us. Thank you, Alice. Thank you, Neil. Thanks, everyone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.